Hi there, Dave Levine here. It's great to have you with me for episode 15 of the Sports Stories podcast. We moved from our conversation with Paul Smith and Fast Bowlers on the last podcast to our special guest today, who is Mr. Bob Reeves. Bob has a long and distinguished career working in sport. I'm really looking forward to hearing all about his journey from being a PE teacher and a coach right the way through to being the president of the RFU in 2014. And he is now the founder of the Foundation for Leadership Through Sport. Bob has been fortunate to have met and worked with some amazing people within the sport world. And I know he has a great story about the late Norman Hunter. So let's not waste any more time. I would like to introduce my very special guest for today's show, a former president of the RFU and founder of the Foundation for Leadership Through Sport, Mr. Bob Reeves. Well, welcome, Bob. It's great to have you with me on the Sports Stories podcast. I really appreciate your time today. And I must be really honest here, I'm ever so excited about talking to you, but I'm not quite sure where we might go given the breadth and the extent of your career in sport. So without further ado, Bob, can I ask you just to introduce yourself and give us a, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of, of where you've been and what you've been doing? <laughs> it goes on a long time. Uh, um, I went into physical education uh, choosing to do that rather than go and do something that paid more money but something I enjoyed doing and for the rest of my life I've always said to students and others always choose what you want to do based on enjoyment rather than how much money you can make and that's been my philosophy really. So I went to Loughborough and uh, became a teacher in Lancashire and after what six years I got a job at Bristol University uh, which partly involved running a teacher training course in games teaching, a second subject PE and uh, I really got into that and I loved it and I got into coaching and I was always in danger of being a better coach than a player and, and as I studied psychology I realised why I'd not been a better player uh, too impatient as a batsman at cricket, you know, too negative thinking sometimes when goal kicking at rugby, thinking I'm due to miss one, I've kicked five on the trot. So I, I was, I was uh, better equipped to try and learn about those things and help other people in a sense. So I was okay, but I was better at coaching and helping other people. So I worked at Bristol University for a very, very long time, got involved in various coaching organizations and, um, involved in the startup of the National Coaching Foundation years ago with Sue Campbell and, and coached a little bit on the, within my job and outside the job and um, stayed at Bristol for a very long time. And uh, in the meantime, I did a master's which was based on team performance and the different factors that make up team performance, different characteristics of players. I was really interested in people. And uh, so then, the last 10 years, I've really had a lot of fun and value out of setting up the Foundation for Leadership through Sport with, uh, with help from Nigel Ray of, uh, of Saracens, who feels strongly about these things, and he put some money in for us to run this, set up and run a charity. And that's been fantastic for the last 10 years, what we've done with that, and really enjoyable. Gosh. Wow. Will that do? That was more than do, but I'm sure there's more to it than just that, though. I'm sure there's some more details within there, which I'm sure we will come to. Given the breadth of your experience, though, I'm also really quite keen just to start off with building on your philosophy. You talked a little bit about, you know, doing what you enjoy. Yeah. How, how has that really played out in what you've done? 
can you give some real concrete examples when you've really had to revert back to your philosophy? Um, well, my master's degree even um, helped understand that the best talent doesn't always have the most success. And um, I, I, I spent a week training with Liverpool Football Club once and uh, Brian Hall, who he and Steve Highway were the only two players in the then first division, now Premiership, who had a degree. And I was, I'd been at school with Brian, sadly he passed away not long ago. And uh, Bill Shankly let me go there for a week and, and join in the training, except at the serious bits, I joined in the warm-ups and basically I preferred to follow Shankly around and hear what, what he was saying because he was a gem. And the passion that came across, which I think also came across with someone like Alex Ferguson, who's, you know, similar working class Glaswegians, you know, the, the fact that they were both of a similar type, they were both interested in the, as much in what sort of people they were as how good they were technically. And in fact, both of them talked openly about how they needed to get to know people even before they signed them on, you know, and if they signed them on and they didn't turn out to be the right sort of people, they then got rid of them. And so I, 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 I was always interested in that and thinking how important sport is as far as people go, you know, and how sport can develop people and how sport can expose people. And so uh, that's why th this leadership stuff I've been doing is really interesting because we talk, it's, we talk about leadership in sport, le meaning within the games themselves, within sport you're playing, leadership of sport, which could be the administrators, the people who run sport and the coaches and so on, and leadership through sport, which means in a sense, what leadership you can learn yourself to help you out of sport in a later life or whatever it might be. So we talk about leadership in of and through sport. And, um, I've learned a lot myself in the last decade in doing this because you know when you when you get some of these people along to and go and visit them and like Eddie Jones for example you know you can't fail but learn from them because they've it's an accumulation of knowledge that people have had over the years but the people who have impressed me most always have been those who care about people and you know and that goes about enjoyment, enthusiasm, passion, which rubs off. Good teachers have it, good coaches have it. I think good managers have it, good businesses have it. And, um, you know, the best businesses I know, they care about their employees and they can pair about, they, they're proud of what they produce and they care about their customers. So, you know, it's, it's a people thing. What did you pick up off the likes of Shankly when you were following around in terms of examples of how they really cared for people? How did they demonstrate and show that? Well, I, I saw I, the, on the Friday, the, the, they had a, a first against second team always um, game. You know, that was on the Thursday. On the Friday, they had six aside and you knew that you were in the 11 for Saturday because the 11 that played in the six game six aside was the 11 for Saturday and Shankly himself then in his 60s and they played and they were always wanting to be on his side because he used to hack them down from him but you know he didn't care they were playing against Manchester United tomorrow he got stuck in and 
clobbered them. And, and I remember watching on the Thursday when the first team played the second team in some um, defense against attack stuff. And this lad, and I can't remember his name now, was an 18 year old in the second team. And he, and he really was playing well. And Chantley was watching and he just said, laddie, come over here. And uh, this lad went to the touchline. He said, I've been watching you, laddie. You're going to be a great wee player. You're going to be a great player for Liverpool Football Club. Off you go. And the, that lad was six inches taller when he went back onto the field. You know, and Chantley was full of this sort of stuff. And um, I could tell you more about it with Brian Hall as well. I don't, I've not got time to tell you about it now. But he, he was quoted as saying, we know about every player who comes to Anfield. We know everything about him. We watch him. We read him like a book. And so we get to know what his strengths are and weaknesses. And we, we, we nurture the person as much as the player. And I, I just thought that was so terrific. You know, that, that's what it should be. And even now, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by how much people say they care for the people they coach. You know, Eddie Jones did a, um, has done two or three things for FLS. And the first time he did something for us, he, it was at a conference two years ago. And uh, he's a hard man, is Eddie Jones. You know, he, and he, he works everyone hard. Everyone has to work their socks off. He'd ring people up in the middle of the night, said, I've just picked, I want you to do this. And, and he works really hard, but he works himself really hard. And he wouldn't ask the players to do something, or his fellow coaches to do something he wouldn't do. But when he was talking about all this at the conference uh, two years ago, he started off by saying, I love my players. Right. I love them. And, and I think when he, they know that, so when he's really hard to them and he's pushing them, they know that he's not being a, a, a hard man. He's, he's doing something that he thinks will help them get better and he cares for them. I think that's the way people should be really. And I've, I've learned a lot in recent years thinking about things like this. And I wonder, Bob, how do people set up that environment? From your experiences through sport, how do we set up an environment where we can push people you know, really hard, but yet they know that we care, so it kind of feels okay. That's a really good question. I think a lot of people in professional sports and business don't have the answer yeah. to that. Uh, I think that setting your standards and living by them yourself is important. Um, there's a, a, a company called Accolade Wines uh, just outside Bristol. They bottle all Hardy's wine. They own all Hardy's wine. They bottle a, a million bottles a day, this crazy company. They're brilliant. <laughs> and the managing director is a rugby man. He, he played for England schools. And there are 200 people working there. And everybody knows everyone else's name. Everyone, when no one walks past anyone without a smile on the face and saying, how are you? Everything going all right? That everyone is invited to make comments about how anything in the company could be improved. In fact, there's a room where people go and put post-its up and suggest anything at all. And that could be a senior person or it could be the person who cleans the toilets. And if someone sticks a post-it up and it's, even if it's not a great idea, they get thanked for thinking of something and they get a little reward for it, a bottle of wine or something. And, and you just get the feeling that everyone has bought into the culture of the organization. 
So I think behavior of everybody from the top down is crucial. You know, if you walk past people and don't acknowledge them, don't expect them to be loyal and, and to you and to come to you when they've got concerns or anything like that. Uh, you know, show them you're interested in them as people and they might be interested in you and the business. And, and uh, I, so I, I like what I see there. And I think lots of sports clubs have it and lots don't have it and sports businesses. And, you know, in these times now, the, uh, what will help a lot of sporting organizations survive will be the culture uh, and, and the way people are within the organization because that might have to sustain them in bad times. There's, um, there's a lot to be said there, isn't there, about the, the trail that we leave and how it plays out later down the line in terms of how we yeah. look after our people. Um, just coming back to you then, Bob, I'm thinking about, you know, in your early career, you know, you've done so many different things from working in the political environment, within a governing body environment, within education for so many years, uh, coaching. I'm just really conscious of, you know, I'm sure you've had many highs and many lows. And do you have a particular story or example about one of your greatest highs? What's, what are you most pleased or feel it was one of your greatest achievements and why? Uh, well, I, I stayed at Bristol University a long time because I thought the longer I stay there and get my feet under the table, the longer I might have chance to influence things because they're very conservative places at universities. You don't often have chance to create a new department or something like that. So I look back and I think we were the first, partly along with Bath University, a guy called Tom Hudson at Bath, we were the first to set up a programme for normal students, uh, not people studying a sport, but people who were good at sport and, and, and were doing a normal degree. And we set up a, a programme for our best students, which eventually attracted you know, Olympic med, future Olympic medalists into a high performance sports program and um, so the fact the university encouraged that was good because I've always been quite innovative and I also then set up the first exercise and health master's degree in the country I mean frankly there must be 30 of them now universities doing exercise and health science but we were ahead of the game on that because uh, people were interested in sports science at the time and I, I was interested in exercise and health as well as sport. So that, that, that was uh, quite significant. Uh, but I think probably I've, I've always been innovative in a sense and I've enjoyed trying out new things. And uh, I, and I always come, uh, most things come back to teams for me, you know, team sport, teams we were talking about at Accolade Wines. And in fact, my master's degree was about characteristics of teams and individuals who make up teams and, and how they affect performance. Uh, as I said earlier, not necessarily just their ability, but their, uh, their other capabilities that might help performance. And so I've had a chance to dip in and out of that at various stages in my life. And and so I'm still doing some things like that now with FLS as well. So, and I've never lost my passion for that either, you know, to see how encouraging people and teams to do their best. How do you do it? So Bob, again, with the experience and environments that you've worked in and, and with the teams that you've worked with, what's some of the greatest learnings that we could pass on to those listening in here? You know, what sort of 
things could we be sharing that might be useful to them to engage in or notice or become aware of in, in getting the best from teas? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the Norman Hunter story. Um, the, uh, the, there used to be a, a, a view in all sorts of crazy research that came out in the 80s, there was a guy called Lenk, an East German, who said that in some sports, if you don't get on with the people in your team, you do better. And But that was sports like rowing. So he coached the East German Olympic rowing gold medalists, and they did studies on them, and quite a few of them really positively didn't like one another. But the point was, in the boat, they were wanting to out-row and... and, and I wasn't going to be the one to let the team down sort of thing because that horrible man behind me, uh, let it be him. But in other team sport where there's interaction and more movement between players, there was a bit of a view that even some research suggested that you're more likely to pass to your mates than, than people you don't like on the field. So that I started, when I did my study, it was a Bristol City football club. And I looked at all sorts of sociometric stuff and, and things on and off the field and relationships between players and coaches and manager. And, and it was about who respected who and who valued who and what they made, what contribution they made to the team effort. And Norman Hunter was there. And Norman Hunter limped when he walked at that stage in his career and um, could hardly run. How old would he have been, Bob, about at that sort of age? Oh, over 30, over 30, 32, something like that. Okay. His England days were past him, his Leeds days were past him. Anyway, uh, and he'd had lots of injuries. And a hard man, but a great man. And uh, anyway, I interviewed all the players and I asked them, st standard interview, uh, who in the club, could be the manager, could be a colleague, could be anyone, who in the club would you turn to if you had a problem with your game? And then another question, who in the club would you turn to if you had a problem with your contract? Who would you turn to if you had a problem domestically at home? And uh, when I looked through the responses of all the players, most of them put down Hunter for virtually everything. <laughs> and he was so clearly indispensable and as had such an influential role. And I'd heard that Alan Dix, a really fine man who was the manager then, was prepared to let Hunter leave because he'd been offered a player coach job at Barnsley, which he subsequently took. Anyway, I played golf with Alan one day and I said, Alan, I've heard you might be letting Norman go. And he said, oh, he said, I've got a great lad signed up to take his place. And I call uh, Sean Fitz. Sean Fitzpatrick, it was Fitzpatrick anyway, a Scottish guy, under 21, Scottish international. And he said, um, he's a really fine young lad and he'll take Norman's place and we'll, he's far fitter and he'll blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I, Tony Fitzpatrick, that was it. And I, I said, you know, I, I can't give you any information because I've got confidential stuff from the players, but I can tell you that I think you would be unwise to let Norman on to go right. and uh, he said well he's going <laughs> anyway he left and at the end of that season Fitzpatrick had come and Fitzpatrick was the player of the year the fans player of the year had a great season he was a really good player and Bristol City got relegated 
And, and so what I don't think Alan knew, and I only found out through exploring, was the importance of certain people within any group, which goes beyond just their own performance, and it goes into how they influence other people one way or another in the group. And it's not just the coach or the manager, it's everyone. Everyone has a, a mini leadership role in a, in a strange way, or a leadership role, not a mini one. And, uh, and so I've, I've recognized that for a long time. And, and, uh, I, and I think it is important to, uh, to think about the makeup characteristics of a team. You know, some teams might lack a, a hard man. Some teams might lack the creative man. And you think about that partly from the point of view of what their playing ability is, but partly what character they give to the team. What did Hunter bring to the team then, do you think, in your observation? Well, he, he had fantastic respect right. and he gave them belief. It was a very young team. You know, he was in his early 30s and he played for England. He played for Leeds United. This was a bunch, a few Scots lads there, young Scots lads. They, they recruited really well in Bristol, but they had no money really. So they weren't able to go out and buy very expensive players. So there were lots of good players there, but it was a young team and it was just, just being promoted into the first division. And I think what Hunter gave them was a certain amount of belief, the way he spoke to them, the way he encouraged them, the way he got stuck in himself, even though he knew he, you know, he, he was perhaps physically struggling a little bit. And, but but he, they had great respect. And in the dressing room, he added a huge amount. And it was picked up by the players. And it was a very strong group of players at that time. Could you identify, Bob, you know, nowadays, is, is there a modern day hunter that we would see as a parallel, you know, in, in any sport? Well, we certainly in rugby saw one in Johnson, Martin, Martin Johnson. So I, I, I think most successful teams would have one or two people who were the obvious leaders without Nestle even knowing it. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, there, there is an, I, I don't like leadership groups. Um, in rugby and in some team sports now, they have leaders groups mm. and they might have four or five players are picked out as the leaders group. And I don't like that myself. Uh, I think every player should be encouraged to be a leader and not think that some of his teammates have been selected as the leaders and therefore they might not need to fulfil that role. I would want every player to be able to go up to the coach or the captain and say, why aren't we doing this or why don't we try that? And, and, and that's on the training field as well and in the dressing room. I think all players should be encouraged to have a voice, to be able to make decisions on the field and, and to be strong. And I, I just think that having leadership groups within team sport undermines that a little bit, in my view. As far as I know, in, in New Zealand rugby, they, they don't go into leadership groups like we do, uh, as far as I know. And, and um, so all individuals are encouraged to speak their mind. And I think that's good. And, and it's interesting, again, from the work that you do, Bob, in terms of both in sport and outside, in terms of helping businesses. And you mentioned the, you know, the, the wine place close to mm. you. Is that actually a lot of these principles in terms of leadership groups or helping all staff and all members become leaders runs parallel, doesn't it? The principle yeah. kind of yeah. threads through, doesn't it, quite strongly? Yeah, it, it does.
And, and it is funny how one of the great joys of the last few years, of seven or eight years running workshops, we've run lots of workshops and we, you know, we had one at Paul Nichols stables last year down in Somerset. And Paul Nichols who, uh, and this is interesting as well, Paul Nichols uh, was very interested in hosting a workshop because he wanted to have some people with whom he could chat and share ideas on how to stay at the top because he'd been champion trainer I think nine years in the previous 11 wow uh, but he he'd, he'd lost two of the previous three I think it was something like that so he was beginning to have self-doubt and get depressed about it almost and so it, we, we ran a workshop which was about not how to get to the top but how to stay at the top you know, what, what are the problems? What are the issues around staying that when other people wanting to knock you off your perch? And uh, I got Eddie Jones on and he said, we had it in Ditchit Village Hall. Brilliant. And one of my directors, of, of, of the directors of FLS, Richard Heitner, uh, who knows a lot about leadership. He wrote a wonderful book called Conciliary about leading from the shadows. He interviewed and chatted with Eddie Jones and Paul Nichols for about an hour and a quarter, and it was priceless. Yeah. Uh, was they, the sports were so different, but they had a great deal of respect for one another, and they, um, they had very similar views. You know, they, they're both quite hard um, and persevering and but people around them really know that they care and they want to do the best they can to help other people do the best they can. And in Paul Nichols' case, the horses do horses, the best yeah, they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, uh, in fact, Eddie Jones has perhaps is his way, uh, you know, in, in the early hours the next morning, sent a note out to all his coaches of the England squad with five or six snippets of gems that... that oh that had come up the day before at the workshop, one of which was, was the last one, I think, be relentless. And, and also amongst them was be cu remain curious, always be curious, always want to learn, always question, always, always push to know more. And, uh, and Eddie got picked that up, those words up even, from yeah. something Paul Nichols had said. And then Eddie wanted that to go through to his own coaches as well, so they could think about it as well. So that sort of stuff to me is wonderful stuff. Yeah. And and uh, and they got on really well. And so I, in fact, I took Paul Nichols to a, a an England Ireland game in the autumn, a pre World Cup uh, friendly game, friendly, scarcely friendly, and uh, and managed to get him on the field after the game with Eddie Jones and. Uh, they continue their conversation on the pitch at Twickenham. And, and so having the chance to do it, to set up and help facilitate a few things like that, I, nowadays, I, I get a great joy out of that. You know, it's, and, and it also plays to me the idea of, you know, being curious and being relentless is also about swapping and sharing and looking for different avenues. And yeah. The terms came out of the conversation, but actually the fact that the conversation took place even is yeah. uh, is is illustrative, isn't it, of the yeah. of the principle of being curious and relentless. You yeah. know, we're always yeah. looking 
in in little spaces and under small rocks for ideas which we might yeah. not see otherwise. It's just... I mean, Ed, Eddie, uh, who's been to several of our events, um, if I email him about something, or if I email several people, as I did just a few weeks ago, I emailed 50 people about, just to see if they give me very brief thoughts on how their views on leadership have changed. And uh, amongst them were top sports people, top business people, and top military people. And I've got about 30 of them back. And uh, there's some very, I'm going to be writing something up on this. In fact, we're going to have a workshop on this with them. But I sent that out to a mix of people. Eddie Jones was locked down in Japan at the time. He might still be. And I was not at all surprised that within less than half an hour of me sending that out, the first response came from Eddie Jones. With also a little note that said, I want to know what other people said later. I'd, I'd like to find out, see what you found out. So his, his passion and his desire to keep working on his own knowledge and, and, and views on things is, is admirable. And, and he's a hard man, but they know he cares, as I said before. So you can get away with being hard if, if, you, if you're fair. You've got to be fair with people. You've got to be honest with people. Uh, if you're hard, you've got to be fair, and uh, and and he is. Bob, this might be a, a tough question. I'm I'm, I'm curious as to how, how do you compare to Eddie Jones in terms of curiosity and relentlessness and and so on? Just given you know your successful journey through sport, how do I compare him with what? With you, in terms of you know you've managed yourself. You've had a very varied. Uh, well, Eddie Jones, is, it's very interesting that some of the best rugby coaches, I don't know, this doesn't apply so much in soccer, because people go into professional soccer when they're very young and then stay in soccer. I mean, yeah. Most managers have come through uh, playing, and, and so uh, they're no less intelligent, perhaps, but they've gone through a different professional career route. Yeah. It is very interesting that some of the most successful rugby coaches and i would include eddie jones in that yeah. have been school teachers right yeah and 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 i think it is not a coincidence you know stuart lancaster who, yeah. who i admire enormously and and was a bit unlucky in a way with england but his his, his reputation has been redeemed with leinster yeah he was a school teacher and and uh, the three i think the last three or four new zealand coaches have all been school teachers. Brian Ashton Gatton. as well, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Brian's a, a, Brian Ashton is a school teacher. Mm. So th there's clearly something in that, mm. in my view. Mm. They've studied education, they've worked uh, not in professional sport, but in classrooms and on fields with young kids, and they've learned their trade at low levels and learned about passing on information, receiving information. They've learned about people. Teachers tend to care about people as well. Mm. And, and so I think there's something in that. And then they just transfer that up to a higher level. And, and the best ones, you know, I think the good thing is that they've had a slightly different experience than just staying in professional sports all their life. I mean, it does uh, disappoint me how many people go straight from being players having been like it's i mean quite a lot of the top soccer players going to top coaching jobs straight away because you know lampard and they might be really good 
They might be really good, but it's a shame if they don't learn the trade a bit first. And I think you look at the people I mentioned before, like the school teachers, and then end up being international sports coaches. They've they've been learning their trade for many years. Yeah, absolutely. For many years, which takes them up perhaps to be an international coach, but didn't start off that way. It's kind of nearly like um, the world of education, whether it be in universities or school teachers, seems to be like nearly a, a solid apprenticeship or excellent ground, isn't it, for making yeah. high-level coaches, it seems. Yeah. And I, th I think the other thing is that um, if you have been a teacher and if you've gone, I went to Loughborough and I was surrounded at Loughborough a long, long time ago with people who were international sports people in loads of different sports. So Frank Dick, who went on to be the GB senior yeah. athletics coach, and has had a huge successful career in business and in sport. You know, he was in my group at Loughborough. Also in my group was Colin McFadden, who went on to play for England, captain England, and play for the Lions of Rugby. Doesn't half make you feel a bit inferior. You, you know, you played for your county schools team, and you think you're the kid, you're the big kid on the block. And these ones come in. More <laughs> pond, and you go there, and so much talent but it's in all sports as well and when you're studying physical education you have to have a go at all sports as well and you're not necessarily good at all of them so there's always something that brings you down a peg or two and uh, and what an environment that is then to to get a, a foundation uh, and in fact I'm, I'm a huge believer in this in all sorts of ways for example i when i was on the rugby union uh, i tried to get them to encourage mini rugby at rugby clubs tens of thousands of kids every sunday morning until this virus hit us mm. would be doing mini rugby and they do mini rugby from the age of six up to about 16. Mm. and then they wonder why at 16 they start a lot of them go off and do other things they've had rugby 10 years solid there's not a lot of PE in primary schools these days and I was encouraging the, the RFU at that time and, and, I, and some clubs. Instead of just having mini rugby for these six, seven, eight-year-olds, give them a, a PE lesson. Let them play with balls of different sizes. Show them how to run better. Make it athletics as well. Do all sorts of sporty things. And then when they get to 10, maybe, start maybe nudging in more towards the rugby. And so they've got a foundation of skill an understanding of sport that they wouldn't have had if it had all been rugby. And David Henry, a, a very good, good friend, in, I've not seen him for ages, but David Henry I used to see a lot of. Yeah. He, having broken a world record in winning an Olympic 400 metres hurdles, not many people break a world record and win a gold medal at the same time. Yeah. It's, you know, they're just going for the medal, not, for the, not yeah. for the record. And he did both in one race. After he, he retired from running, he went to Boston University and did a master's degree. And he studied about 70 or 80 world champions in different sports. And it was either world champion or Olympic gold medalist in different sports, male and female. And, and he tried to work out what it was that they had. And it was rather revealing that the great majority, the, common, the big common factor was parental support. Number one was parental support. But coming close behind was the fact that very few of them, the sport in which they'd been a world champion, was a sport they specialised in as a child. It wasn't even necessarily their best or favourite sport 
as, as, a, as a child age seven or eight or something like that. Mm. The great majority of them had a foundation, a multi-skills foundation, which then with passion and interest and good coaching and parents supporting them, then possibly then steered into the one that they focused on more particularly. And that makes so much sense to me. And, and, and I think it's a really important lesson for sport, youngsters in sport now and clubs in sport, you know, don't ram your sport down their necks all the time. They might turn away from that sport then and say, I want to have a try something else yeah, now when I'm, when I'm old enough to make my own decision and things. And so uh, it, it, David, David Henry revealed quite a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah. And Bob, just turning gear a little here, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that we've talked about some of the highlights of your career and some of the real positive learnings you've taken. I'd also be curious to know about, you know, I'm sure there's been some difficult times and some challenges that you've faced along your sport journey, whether it being in education or as a coach. Could you share an example of something that was being a real low time and how did you navigate that to come out of it the other side? Uh, I think I've not had many disappointments more re in recent years. I, I'm, most of my, probably most of my real dis disappointments, which helped me subsequently, were my disappointment in my own success as a right. sportsman. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I played for Lancashire Schools at cricket, I captain Lancashire Schools, and I thought I was going to be the bee's knees, Lancashire will give me a contract. And they didn't, and, and I wasn't good enough, and although it took a while for me to accept it. But I, I didn't realise why I wasn't good enough, because I was a really technically able batsman, and I, and I very rarely didn't score 30 or whatever. Yeah. But when the, the, I remember years later, the county coach said to me, he said, Bob, you didn't score hundreds. Right. And, um, and I realized that my lack of, my temperament was wrong. And because I'd, I, I always got myself out through impatience. You know, I, I couldn't bear to face a maiden over, you know. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so I realized, Far too late, you know, when I was still playing a bit of club cricket and I was playing a bit for Gloucestershire Seconds in the holidays and started getting some quite good scores then because I realised too late what I'd not known when I was 16, 17, when I'd come off thinking I'd done really well when I'd scored a quick fire 30. And I think I'd done well, but then senior players in the club would say, you should have got 80 today, you should have won as the game or something. And I didn't really take it in. And, uh, and so... When did you take that in, do you think? Or when did that draw through into your career? How, how did it play out to really help you? When I got interesting, when I got involved in coaching, right. you know, it was, it was when I was a teacher, when I went to Loughborough, when I was a teacher, when, when I went to Loughborough, I realised I wasn't that good anyway. Right. You know, there was so much talent there. And I focused then, instead of on myself and my own performance I focused on becoming as good a teacher as I could be and uh, and but it, it was a learning process that got me to that point and so when you ask that question I think there is a disappointment for anyone who has ambitions to be a top-class sports person and then at some stage find out you're not as good as you hoped you were going to be or you know something stopped or you get injured there are all sorts of things that can stop you mm. 
and and so uh, I suppose that looking back that would have been disappointing at the time but it all disappointment should lead to learning and 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 I I probably learned a lot through not doing as well playing I learned a lot that helped me coach better you know and because I I could see it in other people as well then I could see how other people didn't fulfill their potential you know I never fulfilled my t potential as a player and you've got to admire people who fulfill every bit of potential they've got just because they might be like Eddie Jones said they're relentless they, they, they've got a purpose they 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 they're going to make look at Jeffrey Boycott you know would it might not have been popular and he might have been not the most entertaining player but he he made the, absolutely the most out of what ability he had and became very successful but when when you said that, Bob, I also thought, well, maybe you didn't fulfil your potential as a player, but you maybe fulfilled your potential as an educator, stroke coach, you know. And is was that where you're, where you were destined to be and go, you know? I, I'm just yeah, I think so. And the, then the, the other thing about coaching was interesting because, of course, if you get into coaching, you know, I I, I coached the university team. I had a, a couple of stints coaching the backs at Bristol Rugby Club when the game was still amateur, yeah. and I often. You know, people around at that time say what what it would have been like now if it had been professional, and I could well have been in the position if for twenty years later, if I'd uh, if the game had been professional, I might well have had a crack at professional coaching. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. It would seem likely. Um, but the the other interesting thing was about who you wanted to coach. You know, I, I coached England students. Uh, and for a long time, and I coached Bristol University, and I, I was, I coached the backs at Bristol, uh, a couple of stints, and when I was given the chance to possibly be the head coach at Bristol, I didn't take it because I preferred coaching students. I preferred coaching younger players who were keen to learn, right. weren't already set in their ways, and I. And so I never reached as high a level, probably in the senior game, coaching. But I, but my satisfaction was in working with really good young, young people in in other sports as well, because you know that you know as mentioned the high performance program before, where you know we had, we had people who went on to win gold medals in sailing and rowing and all manner of sports that um, came through. A, a very nice little system we'd set up at the university. Do you know what it was that made you recognise that? Because I'm just, you know, as we sat here today, that's such a common dilemma, I guess, in the sporting and coaching system currently, in terms of those wanting to always aspire to work with the first team and the adults. Yeah, actually, that might not be where they're best suited. And I'm just wondering, you know, what was it that helped you come to terms and recognise that actually you were best suited working with students or that age group? Well, I think I probably always had reasonable self-awareness and I'd never even heard the phrase emotional intelligence then. Um, but one or two of our workshops we've done at FLS, we've got the wonderful David Whitaker, who was coach of the GB hockey team that won the gold medal in the Olympics, who went from being a teacher himself to uh, like Frank Dick, they're going out into business and talking about performance in business. And David's particular area of knowledge, and he's brilliant at putting it across, is 
emotional intelligence and relating that to performance. And uh, I, I probably wasn't bad in that area without even ever having heard the phrase. Mm. And, and, I'm, and I'm particularly, the reason I've asked David to come and do a few things with FLS uh, is because uh, I think it's so important is emotional intelligence. And I think that self-awareness and empathy two of the key elements in, in mm. emotional intelligence are crucial for people in their relationships with others, in their performance at work, in their performance at sport or whatever. And, and I think people are more likely to fulfill their potential if they've got good self-awareness, for example. Mm. You know, if, if you think you're the best and you're not the best, you're not going to become the best. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so I think that, uh, Having being able to work with people and encourage them to see where they really are and what their potential is. Hope you'll never be able to tell people what their potential is because some people do a lot better than you would ever thought they were just mm. by sheer determination and ambition. Uh, but you can help steer people on the way into whatever might be appropriate for them, perhaps. Mm. You know, and so I, I've had a lot of fun working with students over the years. And, mm. And, uh, and and then you, when they leave and go, you know, there was one time when we had, in the space of three years, we had at Bristol University, doing, not studying sport or anything, we had four players who, three of them went on to play for England at rugby, one almost did, and all four were in the WASP back division that won the European Cup, the Heineken Cup at rugby. And they'd gone through just playing student rugby and the, on the cusp of the game going professional. So nowadays they might not have even ended up coming to university because they might have uh, given a contract before they came to university. Uh, and that saddens me, that sort of thing. I, I, the, one of the bees in my bonnet is about any top class sports potential should be able to aspire to that potential and achieve that potential without having to miss out on education too much you know I, I think you can do both mm. and i think there are too many people who tell youngsters one don't go to university it's got to be one or the other and i don't believe that and 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 so that that's a, a disappointment that sort of thing has disappointed me a lot in the last 20 years when even people i know have come to me for advice and I've said, if I were you, I'd go to university and push, do the two, and, and then someone comes along and offers a contract, and off they go, you know. And 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 that's what the problem with money, of course, you know, yeah. if, if it's a professional sport. But also recognise sometimes the the discipline of education actually can really help the sports performance. Yeah. In my in my eyes, I guess there's that lovely phrase: "Ask a busy person if you want to get something done." Sometimes that really does help. David, I'm with focus. you. You know, this lad Maroi Toji, who is one of the best rugby players in the world, yeah. wonderful young man. He, the club he's at, is, has had a, a tough year, Saracens. And I hope it's not uh, overshadowed the fact that it's a wonderful rugby club. And they've won awards every year for their community activity. All their players are encouraged to study. Right. There's a great culture there. We were talking about at Accolade Wines. If you go to Saracens, it's something similar. And uh, he told you, not many people would do this. When he was a first-team player, age 20 at Saracens, 
he was still given time off some of his training sessions because he had it down in London, he was doing his degree and he's, he's talking about doing a master's and a PhD now, this young man. And, and why not let him have a couple of days off or training if, if that is helping him as a person? Because he's going to train even harder the next day then, you know. And so uh, you, stories like, you know, this Maro Itoji story and people, ones like that are the ones that really should come out and say, this is an admirable young man. Mm. He's a fine person. He's black as well, you know, and, and, and what a wonderful example he is as a, of a human being. He's bright. He's going to finish up highly qualified academically. He'll probably play for the British Lions, might captain England. He's going to be, and, but if he is injured tomorrow and can't play rugby again ever, he'll be okay. He will be successful outside rugby this year, man. Mm. No doubt about that. And don't we want all people to be like What also rings really strongly for me is that idea that you started off around your philosophy about doing things that you enjoy because that actually helps you do things really well yeah. and you perform yeah. to a high level. And it's a, yeah. it's a lovely, simple phrase, isn't it? But actually the depth yeah. of that is really powerful yeah. and strong, you know, and at the top important. of the game. Yeah, I, th I think it, it is number one, really. Uh, I, c I can't imagine having done a job <laughs> that I didn't enjoy. And I can't imagine playing sport I don't enjoy, you know, and my, there's not much of that. I suppose a, a lot of people lose their love of sport, possibly through being paid and not liking, yeah. enjoy, not having as much fun as they did when, before they became a professional. And, um, you know, the pressures take away the fun a little bit for some people. Some people enjoy the pressures, some scared by it. Yeah, so it is interesting. And, and, and of course, coaches, managers, all those running sport and businesses because you want people in business to enjoy their work don't you the, the people who run sport and business they should be aware of the fact that ideally their people will work as hard as they can for the business for the club whatever it might be they'll work as hard as they can and put as much into it as they can and they'll enjoy it yeah. so how does the culture come about that you can do that because enjoyment doesn't mean slacking at work you know it doesn't mean going going off and and not trying your best because it's sunny today i'm not going to bother going now i'm going to enjoy the sunshine so Boa, earlier on you mentioned about you being quite a, a groundbreaker you know you're pushing the boat you started up a few new courses you were ahead of the game um sat here today looking forward what does it look like if you were looking to the future regarding sort of teams and culture and sport what challenges do we face or what ideas would you put forward no it's a very good question and, and i'm not sure i have the answer i've got a feel for for it and that is look at those who are most successful and what they do differently in business uh, individuals teams businesses um, even the forces you know, they've set up the Centre for Army Leadership at Sandhurst and we do a few things with yeah. them. They get involved a lot of our stuff. And even then, they, you look at what, this is why I asked these 50 people the other week, you ask them how leadership has changed. And, you know, the command and control of the army in, back in Montgomery's day, is quite a different style of leadership to what they're advocating now, where they they don't want people to just 
be willing to do what they're told. They want people who have the capacity to think about what they should do next and maybe do it and be relied upon to make decisions. Now, obviously, someone at some stage has got to say, we've, we've got to do this. And yeah. David Marquet's books are fantastic on this and Turn the Ship Around is a wonderful book, the ex-American naval submarine commander. And he's, he's been over. We, we've got to do a few things with him. And so I think the changes around what Marquet is doing now and what others are doing in leadership, where you actually consciously in businesses and in sports environments, encourage people to, to think, what would I do if it was my decision? To actually make decisions, to question, definitely to question. And, and it's very interesting, I can't, I've not even gone through all the responses, but I mentioned before that I've got 30 responses. Yeah. Already I'm picking up the, the changes. I've asked people what changes in their own leadership style that uh, have come about. And one thing I've picked up, just even just flicking through them is, listen more, talk less. <laughs> and quite a number of them have written something about that. And uh, so I, th I think when you ask me what changes might come about, I think we might, evolve it more thinking of that sort mm. and, and an improved way of management in business improved way of coaching in sport mm. uh improve understanding of those who are being managed and uh, because they're being encouraged to to learn and not just do what they're told you don't learn a lot if someone says just do this <laughs> you know you, you it becomes rote mm. and so so I, I think there'll be the next 20 years will be more of that development, I think. Hmm. I might be completely wrong, but I think that's oh, well, what it's going to be. I, I'm, I'm largely with you. I think it's quite an exciting time. And, you know, I guess just given where the world is and, and you know, we're going to need to be able to do more with less. So how do we get yeah. more out of yeah. our individual teams, our relationships yeah. and so on? And I think it is a, you know, it's a worrying time, but it's also a very exciting time in terms of actually yeah. new new yeah. kind of way of leading both yeah. ourselves and others so you know it's it's really great to hear you talk that yeah. way and and i also love the parallel between you know it's not just in the sport world it's in everything that we do whether education yeah. military yeah. business it's you know and i think the other thing that goes with that david if i might say so is everyone must still want to learn hmm. you know you, you and that's that goes back to what eddie jones said about be curious you know i think that um, the day you stop wanting, you know, crikey, I'm an old mega now, but I'm still desperate to learn. Yeah. And so I think the day you, you think you know it's all, you're finished. And, and so I think sports should change. I think change is good. I think businesses need to change people. So coaches have got to change that rather than just do it the same way one year, next year, the year after. And everyone learns how to play against them because they know how they play sort of thing. I think there's got to be willingness to experiment. Uh, and that where the curious thing comes in and 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 I think sports and business will and, and, and they've got them be able to react to crises and difficulties you know that the, the sports that will come out of this latest tragedy well will be those who are creative and think outside the box a little bit you know, how's rugby going to manage if there's no rugby played, community rugby played till next January? How are universities going to manage when students come back? Some students will come back in the autumn, maybe not all, but some will. But there's no rugby 
until January, but there are lots of other sports they can play. So will, in January, will the rugby club at the university have lost a lot of its potential players because they've signed up for something else. So there's got to be some real creative thinking around how to market these things and how to deal with these things and how to make them attractive. How do you change the game of rugby uh, to, to manage it if you can't play a full scale game? You know, there's got to be real innovation and willingness to, to try things. And that should apply to most things anytime, really. I call back to one of the, the phrases you talked about earlier on. There's always great learning out of adversity and difficulty, yeah. you know, when, if we choose to take it. And I think this is an opportunity yeah. here where we can really hopefully jump on the back of um, it, it's stretching us and making us look at things in a different way. And I, again, with you, I only hope that most of us can come through it and look at it as this opportunity to maybe reinvent or restart or reignite, yeah. you know, yeah. lots of really yeah. positive things could virtually come, but it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I think you've got to say, how can we turn it to our advantage almost? Yeah. You know, yeah. how, what can we make out of this rather than just sulk and say we're, we're stuffed? You know? yeah. <laughs> and because that's not going to work, is it? No. So no. You, you, you've got to, um, I'm sure a lot of people in this lockdown have done things really creative yeah. and done things that they've not done before, done things they've not had time to do before and have thought, I really enjoyed that. Enjoyed that. Yeah, let's no. do more of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Bob, on that note of positivity and creativity, what I would like to do is just finish off by asking you a couple of quick fire questions because those mm -hmm. that listen in like to take a few nuggets and me sat here listening to your story and the journey you've been through in terms of your sport career and involvement there's been phenomenal amounts of insight and little gems along the way but i'm going to throw a few questions at you and your gut answer would be great so the first one i'm going to start with is you've mentioned one or two books earlier on in our conversation what three or four books would you say are real gems which we could point people to to give them a greater insight and help them steer a positive way in their world well i've mentioned them already because they're fresh in the last year or two and uh, covering the areas we're talking about which could apply to sport or business or anything and your own individual status in life. Yeah. Richard Heitner's book, Conciliary, Leading from the Shadows, is a beautifully written book. And uh, Richard, it was number two worldwide in Saatchi and Saatchi and enjoyed being number two rather than number one. And he talks <laughs> about different levels of leadership. Uh, he, he had been CEO of a big company uh, but he preferred not to be because he said the CEOs, they go out, they fly everywhere. They're the ambassadors for the company. Uh, it, it said it's the level below that where the real work gets done. And the conciliary was the, the one below the godfather in the mafia. So that's where he sees the action. <laughs> so that, 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 uh, that's a wonderful book. Um, David Marquet's book, M-A-R-Q-U-E-T, Turn the Ship Round is worth reading it because it's, it's, as he says, it's subtitle is turning followers into leaders. And it's a beautifully, again, easy read. At the end of every chapter, questions asked, which you can relate to yourself. And you, and you can't read the book without gaining personally from it, which is what you want a book to be reading. Uh, so I, I, I think there's certainly two. Um, it's all the recent stuff, really. I'd, I mean, I read all the Jim Collins stuff. Um, Jim Collins, American, wrote a book called Good to Great about great American companies. And uh, then there was a recession. 
And his book, Good to Great, had been a bestseller, but a, a book he wrote after the recession, I thought was much more meaningful. A shorter book, much easier to read, called How the Mighty Fall. And he put a few things, thoughts into this book, because he, what he did is he looked at the great companies from 10 years earlier, right. two or three of which no longer existed following a recession. And so he went back to the great companies and he called it How the Mighty Fall. And he looked at the companies that had been great, which now were perhaps even greater, the companies that were great, which now had collapsed. And he tried to find out the reasons. And a couple of the really good reasons came out, which are worth recounting. One, one is that um, the companies where they didn't chase growth and finance wasn't the one answer to their goals and ambitions the companies where showed they valued people as much as performance in finance seemed to have a culture and it goes back to this other stuff we we're talking about earlier and they 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 seem to have done well in difficult times and that was one thing where people were important and related to that a little bit was the the companies which seemed to have stayed strong were people who were among those at the top necessarily not necessarily the ceo but among those at the top in the company were people who would come through the company from low levels right and so they what it showed was that these companies were good at encouraging the development of talent and also possibly good at recognizing talent and and so the i, I mentioned accolade wines before a woman who's just left the company now, she's got a master's degree now, she's highly capable, she's been at Clay Wines a long time, she's gone off to pursue other areas. She left school at 16 with a couple of GCSEs. And she, in, in the end, with a degree under her belt, supported by the company, a master's under her belt, supported by the company, she had a wonderful job at Accolade called uh, Improving Performance Manager, Performance Improvement Manager. And she went around chatting to people about how can we improve? How can you improve? So that book um, was an interesting book as well. And then, then of course, there are the, the books about people. Um, Ferguson, I, I was never a huge fan of Ferguson, but I have much, <laughs> much more respect for him now than I did then. Well, partly because I'm from Preston, he was Manchester United. <laughs> Anyway, um, but his book, Leading, is a really good book. Yeah. Really good book. And it does reveal a lot more about him and how he, had, he knew a lot more than people might have thought. Mm. You know, as Shank, Shankly would have been the same. You know, they, they might have been from working class families in the Gorbals, but there was something innately intelligent about them. Yeah. And there's that emotional intelligence stuff comes back in for me, isn't it? How they really... I mean that as much as anything else. Yeah. Gosh, some great books there. That'll keep um, the people listening really busy. So thank you for that. I'm going to move us on then. We've talked about a performance environment and, you know, and sport and the importance of health and activity. How do you prepare to be the best version of yourself, Bob? Or how have you prepared, both physically and mentally? I'm not fastidious about being as fit as I can possibly be, but I do I do best part of half an hour every day without fail on a sort of routine of exercises, which is a, a bit of a discipline as much as 
for my health and well-being. And I think discipline to try and keep yourself in good nick and doing the right things to achieve that, I think is really important. You know, I, I still play sport. I play, I play golf pretty badly these days. Uh, and, um, and I still and I enjoy my wine. But I, I used to ski a lot as well. You know, so I did activities outside the ones that I was professionally involved with. And so I think, again, do things you enjoy. And uh, so I think, I, think, I think having a certain amount of discipline, but still having fun. Hmm. I mean, in the, we, with friend, a friend of mine who also was president of the RFU a few years before me, he and his wife and my wife and I, for 11 weeks running, have had a virtual supper party and we've written poetry every week. We've done limericks, we've done sonnets, we've done everything. So, and we've had lots of laughs and come up with loads of rubbish. But the, 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 but the point is to, I think, to people are important, have friends, have fun, and, uh, and then find, and then when you're working, you work. And then, my, I was almost said something that I don't believe with. Believe in, I almost said that work and play are separate. For me, work and play were part of the same thing, really, in a, yeah. and in a, in, a, in a bizarre way. Yeah, yeah. You enjoyed so much what you did. It be, it yeah. felt like it was yeah. play. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great stuff. Um, if you were to win the, a substantial amount of money, Bob, on the lottery, say tomorrow, how would you spend it, or what would you do with it? Well, I've not mentioned it at all in in our chat, but I mean, I, we go to Kenya every year. I've done a lot of work and had a lot of fun. I love animals and birds and things, and we've got friends out there. And we go every year, and I I try and help a couple of schools over there oh. and I've tried to help some individuals over there and um, so I'm not a wealthy man but I'd if I had more money I'd be putting more money into things like that you've got to be careful in Africa of course because there's so much corruption and everything but there are some lovely people there I, I got the Kenyan Olympic team to use Bristol as a base before the Olympics and that that in fact when you talked about satisfying things before you know that was pretty high up uh, to get and, and to get we got 10 Bristol team schools twinned with 10 Kenyan schools oh. uh, around them coming here for the Olympics and uh, so looking back that was Fantastic. worth doing that was quite satisfying so well, more of that more of that would be uh, if I had more money I think yeah. I wouldn't go on more holidays I, I go on holidays enough as it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. It's well-meaning and and really impactful kind of uh, work. That a couple more questions then, as we draw towards the close. And this is uh, this is one of my favourite in terms of if you were to look back over your life, what advice would you give to a, a kind of a younger, stroke teenage version of yourself? You know, what one sentence advice would you give to yourself? Well, you know the answer to that already. <laughs> Go on, reiterate it. Tell us again. Uh, do the best you can. Uh, do something you enjoy. Yeah. And then the third one was find a way to help other people. Fantastic. Now, it doesn't mean to say I want everyone to be a teacher, uh, but it does mean don't always think just of yourself. You know, think of the effect you have on other people. You can be a leader by setting a good example. You know, you, you don't have to do anything other than set a good example and that's a, a great leadership role perhaps yeah. so, I, so i would bring all that sort of thing and that's helping other people mm -hmm. 
And then looking back over your, your career, again, through education, through the roles with the RFU um, and, and more locally and right the way through to today with FLS, who, who would you say are two or three of the key people which you can recall have really impacted on your, your journey? Oh, uh, my PE teachers at school who, get, who fostered the love in games in particular because I had PE teachers who were team game people. And, and so that was good. I had an uncle who was a, a remarkable man. And my father died when I was quite young and, and I thought I was going to go into engineering at Manchester and, uh, because I had no interest in it, but we were all encouraging those times to go into sixth form science subjects because you, the, the country needed more engineers and scientists and things and it paid more money. And he came round, he was a, he'd been a headmaster and he came round to visit my mother and myself one day. I was 16, 17. And he said, uh, why are you going to do engineering? He said, do you really want to do that? And I said, well, I've been encouraged to do these subjects at A-level and, uh, and, and that seems to be it. And he said, do you really want to do it? And I said, no. And he said, do what you enjoy that's where it came from and he and do you know what he bought out he had a little briefcase with him and he opened it and he without me knowing or even having thought about it uh, had sent off for a prospectus for Loughborough wow and he gave it me and he said well we'll come and visit you next week and then when you've had a chance to look at it tell me what you think and that that's what made it and the whole of my life has followed from that really so that has to be the one biggest thing it's amazing how something like that might seem so small but small. becomes huge so that so def, definitely him and yeah I'm, of course there's too many to mention going through but it, I, I think if if i had to say that if there's one person doing one thing that has a huge effect it had to be my uncle frank Great, great. And I love that small bit, which when we look back, we can see the massive impact. You know, it's a proper turning point, that wasn't it? Yeah. In terms of yeah. your life. And your story again, Bob, has gone in and out of different roles. I know you spent a long time at the university and so on, but you've explored and you've been a student of the world of sport for so long. And looking back, whose sports story sat here today would you be quite interested in finding out a little bit more about? Whose sports story? Yeah, so whose story would you like to hear shared? There, there are so many wonderful sports stories. I think a lot of them, a lot of the best ones are the inspiring ones are the people who overcome difficulties. Uh, and you know, there, there are obvious ones about you know, Clive Woodward and Seb Coe and people like that, both ex-Loughborough. Uh, um, I think some of the inspiring stories have got to be those who've overcome difficulties. And it's, it's interesting uh, looking back at the, 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 the people I came across as students, you know, some of them are great stories now. Um, the, the, there were one or two who went, who did well in the last Olympics. I mean, a, a good story is, I mean, you might not even know the name, but the, the current captain of England rugby seven-a-side team, and he's been captain for four years now, and he's one of the best seven-a-side players in the world. Got the silver medal in the Olympics in Rio. He's called Tom Mitchell. 
Now, Tom Mitchell came to Bristol University and uh, he didn't even play in the first team for his first half season. He was playing in the freshest team and the coach of the freshest said, don't tell the first team coach, this lad's really good, but I want to help him. I want to nurture him before he gets thrown in at the deep end. And, uh, and so I got to know Tom well and, uh, and Tom was beginning to reach the point where he might get offered a rugby contract at the end of his three years at Bristol. People thought he might be a bit small, but not necessarily. But I then, I took him to this the Safari Sevens in Kenya, which I, for 18 years, I took teams to the Safari Sevens in Kenya. And uh, I took Tom, a mix of current students, former students, and a couple of real ringers to make it a strong team because it was international standard tournament. And I took Tom and he looked terrific at Sevens. And so I rang Ben Ryan, the, who then, had great success coaching Fiji to the Olympic gold in the same uh, Rio sevens. And Ben Ryan was then the England coach. I said, Ben, you've not heard of this lad. I said, but I've just seen snippets of him that might suggest that he's worth a look. And so Ben took him along and, and took him to a, one or two lesser tournaments and, you know, where they were just trying people out and whatever. And he said, uh, I think he's so good, I'm, I'm going to offer him a contract. And then Tom, quite unassuming, had never thought of himself at this level. He said, well, I was hoping to go to Oxford and get a, a blue at Oxford. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, well, do it then. I'm sure Ben will still be there in a year's time. And so Ben was indeed there in a year's time. So Tom went and got a blue at Oxford. And of course, rugby sevens became much more professional and more worthwhile doing, even though they don't earn anything much, like as much as the people that in the 15-a-side game. So Tom now has been in the England sevens team as a first-choice player for six years, seven years. He's been captain for the last four, and he's had a fantastic career. He's got his degree at Bristol behind him. He's got his Oxford University degree and a master's and, and a blue. And he's been doing um, what he enjoys. <laughs> he has. So if you're going to interview people, you know, get people like that who have a personal story to tell that is not a, as obvious. And, and, my, and, and, and underneath them, someone like Tom, a modest, lovely lad, has some great stories of his own to tell. And, and then another former student who, Ebony, Sorrow Brown now, she's married now, Ebony, she's captain England netball. She's got a Commonwealth Games gold medal. And netball is professional now, but it's mm. not a lot of money. And she's working as a solicitor in Bristol. She's captain of Team Bath. She's just had to take time off. Well, it's been enforced by coronavirus, but it's, she's pregnant with her first child. And, and what fantastic these are the people i pick out because ebony wonderful student got a good degree did law at bristol and then and then has got a commonwealth games medal in gold medal in netball captain her country well let, let me stop you there bob don't tell too much of this story and leave it with me and i'll see if i can speak to them because i'd love to hear their stories actually well, they know one another you could get the two of them to do a chat. <laughs> double act yeah but they, i think it's just these are the unsung yeah. stories you know they're not the ones you might expect and they've, they've got their own personal stories to tell ebony a, a girl of jamaican origin fantastic young lady 
and so much to give and, and great now. She's a, a lawyer, but she's wonderful sportswoman, great personality. And I'm doing things with her on, a, on FLS as well. Right. So uh, people like that deserve to be heard. Well, Bob, all I can say is thanks for sharing those gems and, and that insight as to the stories that really are important for people to hear. You know, you've worked in sport, you've been involved so many so many years and I, and I think the principle of the Sports Stories podcast is to really try and use the, the vehicle of sport, as you said, both in outer sport and through sport to help people yeah. develop in whatever they do. You know, yeah. and, and you've been um, kind enough today to share some of your stories, your insight and your gems, which I, I fully appreciate. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for that and also to wish you well with the work you're doing with the FLS. Again, I know that's on a, a similar vein is to really make a difference through sport. Yeah. If, if anybody would be interested to find out more about what you're doing and how you're doing yeah. it, how, yeah. how could they no, I'd, I'd, it's, it, I would appreciate it. It's, it's called Foundation for Leadership Through Sport. Very simple. It's a charity. I mean, I don't get any money out of it. It's just a fun thing to do, but it's a worthwhile thing to do. That's the great thing. We've done a lot of good things. If people look at the website, there are a few snippets on that anyone can see. Anyone who's particularly interested in sport or anything related to performance, could be, can ask to be a member. We uh, don't have a rigorous screening program. They just email in, it's all on the website saying why they'd like to be a member. And the big advantage of being a member is that uh, it doesn't cost anything. And all Eddie Jones's stuff and Paul Nichols stuff and all Richard Hank, all this stuff that's been done at previous workshops and, and conferences is available on the secure part of the website for people to see and hear. And so it's not been done to make money at all. We go into schools and do workshops in schools and things like that, but we, we've not set it up as a, a money-making vehicle. We set it up as a sharing information vehicle, really. www.flsport.net. And if anyone wants to find anything more from me, just email me at bob.reeves at flsport.net. Great. Thanks for that, Bob. And what I'll make sure I do is put it within the show notes of the podcast. Though. Yeah, that's fine. Um, which just leaves me to say, you know, once again, a really huge thanks for your, your time today and, and your insight. I know that I could have carried on listening to some of your stories for another two or three hours yet. So uh, with any luck, we might um, meet up again and do this again and we can do the next, next, no, uh, no, next no, episode. I, I enjoyed the chat with you, David. It's really good. I hope there's some, some worthwhile stuff in it. Well, anyway. as, as you said rightly along the way, everybody's got a bit of a story and, you know, Tom and Ebony have got a story as of you, as of I, and we all have. And I think that's my principle is to just really yeah. make sure that everybody gets a chance to, to just yeah. take one or two small things out of it, which can help, hopefully help yeah. them and steer them on their way. So, Bob, mm. thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And right. uh, good luck with the work going forward. So what a brilliant conversation with Bob. So much to pick out in terms of how successful teams function, the key attributes of successful leaders and coaches, as well as some of his simple yet key philosophies on how to progress purposefully through life. Two themes for me were his drive to do things that he really enjoyed and when coaching or leading others, the importance of showing that you cared. There seems to be a broader thread appearing in that enjoyment in what you do and caring for others has cropped up in previous podcasts, which is great. I also found it really interesting, the link Bob made from his earlier experiences as a sportsman and the challenges he faced right the way through to how this has impacted on his current views of the world and the work he does now. This leads me to pose the following two questions. How could you turn what is proving difficult at the moment to your advantage? 
And what small life event has made the biggest impact on you and your career to date and how? If you recall, Bob's uncle Frank provided him with a prospectus for Loughborough University, which set him on a journey in and through sport. Well, I sincerely hope you both enjoyed today's podcast and have taken something from it. Please share this with friends and colleagues. And as always, a review on Apple Podcasts would be much appreciated as this helps attract new listeners. We have some fantastic guests lined up, including coaches, athletes, and senior leaders in a variety of sports. And it would be great to have you join me. As always, if you would like to give feedback or have any ideas on how to further develop the show, then drop me a line at sportstories247 at gmail.com. So from me, Dave Levine, have a great week, look after yourself, and see you next time on the Sports Stories podcast.